0: For those of you who've been here, you know that we've been talking about Exodus. And I want to say that this morning, thanks to this giant hole in the stage that goes down about 10 feet into the pit, I have the opportunity to make this the single most memorable sermon you've ever heard. So, you know, I'm going to try not to do that, though. Um, So we've been talking about Exodus and Exodus, as I've been saying every week, is a story that takes us from, where, where is God? Where on earth is he? What's going on? We're in slavery. He's gone. He's absent. He's not with us. To, by the end of the book, oh, God, there he is living in a tent in our midst. And the book of Exodus ends like this. I'm going to read the very end of the book, chapter 40, starting in verse 34. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the Tent, that was the home of God, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent structure. Uh, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud didn't lift, they wouldn't set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. That's how Exodus ends. And then, uh, immediately after that, you roll into the book of Leviticus, which is essentially a book about how do you have a holy God living in a tent in the midst of people who are inherently Not holy or not like God. And and holy is really just a word that means other than. Holy, God is other than, He is holy, He's different than us. Or when the people are called to be holy, like God is holy, uh, that's a statement of be different than the other nations around you. And then the question is, well, in what way should we be different? Should we just wear funky shoes that set us apart or something like that, but then you have uh, the law, essentially, that gives them the heart of God to show them how they can actually be different in their lives, in their worship, in the way they follow God, so on and so forth. So, beginning of the book of Exodus, people are in slavery, wondering where God is. God shows up, uses Moses, delivers them miraculously from slavery. They go out into the wilderness They camp at Mount Sinai, and then in chapter 19, that's, uh, we we did that chapter a week or two ago, I don't remember, and uh, that's where God says, okay, you're you're out of slavery, if you want to be my people, I'll be your God. The people say, woohoo, let's do it, and that's where they're actually formed into an official nation with their own set of laws that give them an identity, and those laws are basically 20. Through 23, chapters 20 through 23. And then you hit chapter 24 and you start getting regulations for the construction of a tabernacle. And try reading it sometime, but don't feel pressure to make it all the way through. You know, you you start reading it and you're like, oh my goodness, what why would God care about that? You know, all of these very detailed regulations for how he wants his house built, and then you get essentially a repeat of those regulations where they're telling you they built it. So you get these chapters of here's how I want you to build it and then the description or the narrative of them building it and then it ends with chapter 40, uh, like I just read, where God comes and dwells in this tent and, and what God is trying to do is tangibly show that he is with his people right? It, it's not like God is contained to this tent. You know, we know that God, God can be anywhere, or sometimes we use the word omnipresent. God, God is available. Uh, God is everywhere. God is available everywhere. But, but he sort of does this tent thing as kind of a tangible way that the people can understand, oh, okay, God is living in our midst. So we talk about this thing called the tabernacle, and I have uh, some pictures that might make it a little, more, a little more tangible what we're talking about. So somebody took the time to construct a tabernacle according to the regulations in Exodus as best they could follow it, and here it is. You, you, I mean, you can, as a tourist, go and visit this thing. I think I have another picture of it from a different angle. Yeah, uh, uh, shooting down on it. You can see that it's not super huge, okay? And so what you have is the main tent and then an enclosure that, that it's basically like a fence, you know, God's fence around his yard, so to speak. And then uh, the big altar out front is that box-looking thing. We'll talk about the altar quite a bit today. Uh, what, what do I have next? <clears throat> okay, here's a drawing uh, just to give you, I don't know, another view. You can see, uh, because of the people wandering around here, that, again, we're not, we're not talking about some huge thing. Think of it this way. Ramses, who some think was the pharaoh of the Exodus, he had a home, a palace, that was like four square miles, large, big. And and here's God's palace, house, tent. You know, God doesn't really have an ego that had to be rubbed on that regard. And then on the next picture, uh, I show you this because um, uh, as we go through, we might run into some verses that talk about the horns of the altar and I wanted to show you, <laughs> I don't know why I did this. this. I just felt the need to show you this picture and say, that's absolutely horrible. It wouldn't have looked like that at all. But they're, tra- they're trying to represent the horns of the altar. They're like, horns? What do horns look like? There it is. And then the red that they put on those horns is the supposed to be the blood that gets smeared on, which you know, somehow still manages to look like lipstick. All right. So this is what horns of an altar would actually look like. This is, uh, nope, sorry, I'm still on the, yeah, there we go. So this is a modern reconstruction of what an ancient altar would look like. This is what the altar of burnt offering that we're going to read about would look like. How do we know it would look like this? Well, here's some pictures from actual archaeological excavations. On to the next. Here is, uh, this is an actual ancient altar. Uh, Another one. Um, this would be more of a small, like incense type altar. You can see the little knobs on the on the ends. Those are what we refer to as the horns of the altar. I think I have another one. Uh, sometimes they would decorate these things, little decorations on the side. What's next? Oh yeah, here's one. A couple of the horns of the altar are broken off, but this is this is found. This is actually where it was found. So this is right in the middle of an archaeological excavation. So this is a real. Uh, alter what they would have looked like from this time period. Uh, what's, what's next? Okay, so here is a model of the tabernacle. Now, if, if you can't read the small print, don't worry about it, because all I'm really trying to get at is the, uh, the, the boxes, okay? So the things that we're going to uh, focus in on today as I try and explain a little bit of what's going on with this tabernacle thing is uh, you need to look at the rectangle that is uh, within the bigger rectangle. So the bigger rectangle is the, uh, that fence line that we saw in the picture. And then the smaller rectangle is the actual tent, so you're kind of getting an overhead view. The back third of that tent is called the most holy place, or in some translations, the holy of holies. I'll sort of be interchangeable as we're talking about it. And the ark would be placed in that most holy place. Or, or holy of holies part of the tent. And then the front two-thirds is called the holy place. So you, have, you, you go into the tent, and you're I'm in the holy place, and then there's a curtain two-thirds of the way back that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And the idea is that God's seat or his throne is in that holy of holies. And then out in the front there's a little rectangle on the picture, and that's where the altar is, that they're going to do burnt sacrifices, and we're going to read some stuff where it talks about the altar, okay? So the main things you need to know uh, for what we're going to talk about, the altar out front, the main altar that is not within the tent, the tent itself, the front two-thirds, the holy place, the back third, the most holy place, and there's also some stuff within that first two-thirds uh, that will get mentioned, but I'll, I'll point it out as we go along. Okay, so just to, just to review, Exodus, where's God? Oh, there he is. Hey, you want to be my people? Yeah, we want to be your people. Okay, here's what I care about. And build a house for me so that you can know that I'm right there in your midst. Woohoo! And then God takes up residence in the house. That's Exodus. And then you immediately go into Leviticus, and you have a lot of what sounds really weird to us, sacrificial stuff that is primarily designed around how does a holy God live in a tent in the midst of an unholy people? Okay? So, what we're going to do is take a quick read of uh, Leviticus chapter 4. All right? Leviticus chapter 4. And. I'm just I'm just gonna say I love doing this because I know I realize that Leviticus doesn't get preached a lot, <laughs> and so for me it's like it's kind of fun because I'm not too worried about oh they've heard this a hundred times, so <laughs> so anyway all right Leviticus chapter four are regulations for a sin offering or uh, some translations might have it as uh, regulations for a purification offering. Either one is fine, because what it is, is an offering designed to purify from sin, okay? And uh, I'm going to tell you up front, because it'll make it easier as we go along. What is very easily confused is uh, the question of what is being purified from sin, okay? That's where the confusion in Leviticus comes up for Christians because we are so used to talking about Jesus purifying us from our sins by his sacrifice that we go to Leviticus and we assume that it is the people who are being purified from sin it is not it is the tent that is being purified from the contamination of being in the midst of people all right and I'm going to show you how this works okay so Leviticus chapter 4 Uh, The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, here's what you do. If the anointed priest sins, all right, so we're going to start by talking about if it's a priest who sinned, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. So we're way out on the right side of this picture. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then the anointed priest who's doing the officiating shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. So we're going into that front two-thirds, the holy place. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. So presumably we're talking about sprinkling blood "...on the curtain that separates the front two-thirds from the back two-thirds. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense." This would be just like that picture I showed you of the little one, uh, the little altar. And this would be inside the the holy place. So he uh, puts some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he pours out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So that's the big uh, square all the way to the right, outside of the actual tent. He shall remove all the fat from the bowl of the sin offering, all the fat that is connected to the internal organs, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which he'll remove with the kidneys, just as the fat is removed from the ox sacrifice as a fellowship offering that was described in chapter 3. Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. The big square to the right. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh, as well as the head, legs, internal organs, and intestines, that is, all the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean where the ashes are thrown and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. Okay, so you have, if anyone sins, here's how you pur- purify from that sin. You uh, take an animal, you make a sacrifice, and you start sprinkling blood. That's the basic gist, all right? Okay, and then uh, the next verse, if the whole Israelite community sins. And and as you read through it, it's basically the same thing that we just read. You you do the same basic stuff if the whole Israelite community sins. You take some blood, you sprinkle it inside the tent in that front two-thirds, and uh, out on the main altar of burnt offering. Then in verse 22, when an elder or a, a leader of the people sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, when he realizes his guilt and the sin he has committed becomes known, he must bring as his offering a male goat without defect He's to lay his hand on the goat's head and slaughter it in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered before the Lord. So we're out at that uh, square uh, burnt offerings uh, altar to the right. Uh, It's a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He shall burn all the fat on the altar as he burned the fat of the fellowship offering. In this way, the priest We'll make atonement for the leader's sin, and he'll be forgiven. Uh, The thing that I want you to notice, okay, is in this chapter, you start with a priest, and when it's a priest who sinned, you sprinkle blood on the altar of burnt offering outside the tent, and you also sprinkle some blood inside the tent in that front two-thirds. But when we get to the point where no priest is involved in the sin, you only sprinkle blood outside the tent, Okay, that's an important distinction that that will become clear in a bit. Then in verse 27, if any average member of the community sins, and then you have a similar regulation, and again, you're not dealing with a priest, and so you only sprinkle outside the tent. Okay, and then uh, once... Once you kind of wrap up all of the how you do it, then you get this statement. This is at the very end of chapter 4 of the book of Leviticus. In this way, that is by doing this sacrifice that's being described, in this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they've committed, and they'll be forgiven. Okay. In this way, the priest makes atonement for the people, and the people will be forgiven. Now, here's the thing. When you just read that line, it sure sounds like it's the people who are being cleansed from their sin, and it would be very easy to read this and think, oh, well, this is how somebody in Old Testament times got to heaven. They do their little sacrifice, the the animal is their substitution, and the animal dies on their behalf, and the people are forgiven, and they get to go to heaven, And what we're going to see is that as easy as it is to uh, get that idea from that last line of Leviticus 4, it's a wrong idea. We're actually imposing a lot of our understanding of how things work with Jesus onto what's going on with these animals, all right? So uh, probably a little bit confusing uh, uh, so far. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to go to Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to confuse you a little more, and then, and then we'll, we'll pull the pieces together, all right? Um, I have talked about this in, in classes, uh, both at the Bible college level and at the seminary level, and, I've talked, and I've, I've talked about this in churches a fair number of times. Right now, this sort of, I don't know what's going on feeling that you have is normal. <laughs> it's okay, I promise. I promise that it, it, will, it will tie together by the time we're done, okay? So, Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16 is the regulations for the Day of Atonement, okay? Or uh, you may have heard the holiday, Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. All right. So, Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, Aaron is the high priest, by the way, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or he's going to die, because I'm going to appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So we're talking about the most holy place in the back. And and what God is saying is, the the dude can't just stroll in here whenever he wants. Why? Why? Because God is a holy God, and when unholy or unclean or not appropriately prepared comes into contact with holy, you die. It's just how it is. Now, here's the thing that I want to try and get across. Here's a thing that I want to try and get across. We in our culture view the idea of holiness as an abstract, all right? It's an abstract concept. That, that we talk about very abstractly. In ancient Israel, it was a very concrete concept. And the only, the only way I can think of to explain it is imagine if you were a scientist who worked in a lab dealing with biohazardous material. Like your job was dealing with with viral kinds of things that if they were to get out would cause some sort of movie type epidemic sort of craziness. What would you do in order to go into the lab to work with that material? And there are anthropologists who have actually written on the comparison between modern scientists who work with biohazardous material or nuclear waste, comparing them with the way ancient cultures would approach concepts of holiness and dealing with their gods, including in Leviticus. My point is, if I came in with, with a, a piece of like highly radioactive nuclear waste and said, hey, check this out, and chucked it into the middle of the room, you'd probably be a little bit upset. Okay? That's how they viewed holiness. Holiness was that dangerous and that tangible. And the steps that you have to take to ensure that you can enter into the presence of the holy was very, very similar to the types of rituals that scientists have when they are preparing themselves to enter into a lab full of biohazardous material. Okay, They thought of it that concretely. So what God is saying is don't just go strolling back into the most holy place or you'll, you'll get toasted the same way that if I strolled into a biohazard lab and just started drinking the weird liquids I saw or something. So this is how Aaron, verse 3, is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering. That's, that's what we just read about in chapter 4. And a ram for a burnt offering. We didn't read about the burnt offering, but that is in Leviticus chapter 1. It talks about burnt offerings. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with his linen undergarments. One of my favorite verses in scripture. As it, if you, <laughs> sorry, this is nerd humor. But if you're ever like, you know, I, I, hey, what's, what's like your life verse? I don't know if you all use that lingo. We used to use it when I was growing up. Or, um, you know, what, what is your favorite verse in the Bible? Try that one sometime. Leviticus 16.4, man, put on the sacred linen tunic with your linen undergarments. Okay, that's, a, that's a great one. There, there, there's also, there's also uh, my personal life verse, Leviticus 3.16, which says the fat belongs to the Lord. So anyway, these are the sacred garments. He needs to bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And from the Israelite communities to take two male goats for a sin, sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Again, hey, put on sacred linen underwear and bathe. Like, we don't really think of that in terms of uh, of dealing with um, uh, worship or going into God's presence or those kinds of things. But again, this is an ancient culture. They're viewing it very concretely. So uh, Aaron, verse 6, is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering, that Leviticus chapter 4 offering we read. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now we're running into this word atonement and we have to ask the question, what does atonement mean? And if, if you hang around uh, churchy circles for any length of time, you might hear the idea, oh, atonement means at-one-ment. It's where we get to become at one with God, which is memorable uh, in its cheesiness, but it isn't entirely accurate. And the reason is it's not what the word atonement actually means. It's the result that occurs Because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. In other words, Jesus' death and and that whole thing creates for us atonement. And as a result of that atonement, we can be in relationship with God. But the word atonement doesn't actually mean to make at one or something like that. Uh, The word atone, and actually it's the Hebrew word kapur that we're talking about, means to cleanse or or to wipe clean, okay? So when you're reading Leviticus and you keep running into the word atone, what what you're being told is that something is being cleansed or wiped clean, all right? It's it's the same word that would be used if you were like, yeah, I gotta wash my car, I gotta atone my car. We don't say atone my car because that would be weird, but that's what the word means, all right? So Aaron is bringing this, uh, goat chosen by Lot to, uh, to make atonement, to cleanse. Okay, Verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement, to cleanse, on behalf of himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He takes a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and takes them bah, 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 behind the curtain. Now we're going into the Holy of Holies, and it is only one person, the high priest, and it is only once a year. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law, in other words, the ark, so that he won't die he is to take some of the bull's blood with his finger, sprinkle it in front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. And verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. In other words, he's first doing it just for himself and his household. And then he's doing it for the whole community of which he is a part. But it's the same basic thing. Verse 16. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. This verse, Leviticus 16.16, 16, is critical if you want to have any shot at understanding the book of Leviticus. Okay? In this way, by doing this sacrifice that we've been reading about, he will make atonement, that is, cleanse. He will cleanse What? the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Okay? In other words, it's not the people that are being cleansed by the sprinkling of blood. It's the tent. All right? And, and sometimes it gets obscured in, in the translations, but here's the thing. In, in the Hebrew, and I'm, I'm always hesitant in a sermon to talk about the Hebrew because the last thing I want to do is give this impression that you can't understand the Bible unless you learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's not the point that I'm trying to get at. But any of you who know more than one language, you know that sometimes it, it, when you're translating, it, it just it, it's easy to, to either not get the whole sense across or, it, well, you know how it is. But, so the thing that I'm trying to get at is that in English, it, we say, you make atonement for the most holy place, for the people. We use the word for both times. For the most holy place, for the people, and it, and it can kind of get confusing. In Hebrew, there are different words for, for, and for marking a direct object. All right, sorry, I realize you didn't come to church for a grammar lesson, but here's the thing. A direct object is what receives the action of a verb, okay? Okay. So when I'm a jerk, my wife punches me. Wife, subject, me, direct object, right? That's not true, by the way. (laughs) Becky hates it when I use that one. Sorry. Um, But the thing is that in Hebrew, you have a separate word to mark a direct object, to mark what is getting the action of the verb. And it's a different word in Hebrew than what is getting translated as for. And in Hebrew, it's clear. The priest does these things to cleanse direct object the tabernacle whether it's the most holy place in the verse we just saw or later we're going to see the altar the tent whatever it is okay it's very very clear in hebrew the cleansing is cleansing the tabernacle for the people in other words on behalf of the people it's 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 very clear in hebrew So, again, Leviticus 16, 16, in this way, by doing this blood sprinkling stuff, he will cleanse the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. In other words, you have a holy, sinless, perfect God living in the midst of an unholy, sinful, sin-prone people, and you have to have a means to cleanse the tent from the uncleanness that comes as a result of our sin, so that God can live in the midst of the people. And these sacrifices are designed to do that. They are designed to cleanse the tent so that a holy God can live in the midst of an unholy people. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to cleanse in the most holy place until he comes out having cleansed for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then, verse 18, he comes out to the altar that is before the Lord and cleanses it. Okay, that, that's the bronze altar, the square uh, altar of burnt, burnt offering. He takes some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and puts it on the horns of the altar, and he sprinkles some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it. You see see this? We're cleansing the the tabernacle. And to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. And when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, in other words, when Aaron has finished cleansing the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, they cast lots. One goat was going to get sacrificed. Another goat was going to be the scapegoat. So they bring forward the scapegoat. Verse 21, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. All right, let's recap. Let's recap. It is very easy for us, especially if if we've been Christians for any length of time and we're used to the idea of Jesus making atonement for us. It's very easy then to read Leviticus and say, oh, I know what's going on. They're putting their hand on the animal and that animal is becoming our substitution. Our sins are going on that animal and then that animal dies on our behalf. And somehow, in the sprinkling blood stuff, the people get forgiven and they can go to heaven. Not what Leviticus is teaching at all. What is Leviticus teaching? Leviticus is teaching that you have a holy God living in a tent in the midst of an unholy people, so you've got to clean the tent. How do you clean the tent? You clean the tent through these blood sacrifices. Now why would God choose blood sacrifices instead of just, you know, some Windex and call it good or whatever? And that, that, that's really, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you, but it, it's a cultural thing. In, in the ancient Near East, it, it would not be at all abnormal for the Israelites to, to hear about these sacrifices. These types of blood sacrifices Were a normal thing in the ancient world, as normal as the idea of us um, giving money. Okay? As a matter of fact, sacrificing animals is how you give money in the ancient Near East, because this is before money. And so the currency was things like your animals or your flower that you have in uh, chapter three or whatever. Okay, so sacrificing in this way is is a normal thing to them in the ancient world. And so the idea is you have a holy God living in a tent in the midst of an unholy people. The unholy people are going to dirty the tent. And so we have these sacrifices where we can take blood and we can sprinkle it to cleanse the tent so that God can live in our midst. And you only cleanse the tent where you go. That's why only the high priest sprinkles blood in the most holy place, because the high priest is the only one who ever goes there. That's why in Leviticus chapter 4, the priests sprinkle blood in the holy place and at the burnt uh, burnt offering uh, altar, because that's where they go to do their stuff. But when an average person of the community, in other words, a non-priest gives a sacrifice, you only sprinkle blood out at the altar, not in the tent. You only have to sprinkle where people go because you've only managed to dirty where you go. Does it make sense? Are you with me? And so if we go back to Leviticus chapter 4 and we reread that summary statement, What we're being told is that in this way, let me read the line as it is in this translation real quick. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they've committed, and they'll be forgiven. Now, let me kind of read it, pulling together what we're talking about. In this way, by doing this sin offering, the priest will cleanse the tabernacle On behalf of the person, because of the sin that person has committed, and they will be forgiven. What does forgiven mean? Forgiven here cannot mean this is how you get into heaven in the first place. Why not? Because they're already God's people, they're already in relationship with God. This is not about salvation. This is why Paul in the New Testament can say, we are saved by grace through faith. He wasn't coming up with something new. That's how it always was. The people in the Old Testament were saved the same way people in the New Testament are, by grace through faith. These sacrifices were designed for the maintenance of the relationship for the continuing goodness of the relationship. So when it says in Leviticus 4, they will be forgiven, it's actually using a technical term that means the the pre-sin good state of a relationship will be restored. Okay, that's that's what that word means. Uh, We know that. Well, I I won't get too technical. But if you don't believe me, you know, it's just... (laughs) Talk to me afterwards, and I'll explain how we know that that word in Leviticus 4 means restoring right relationship that was broken. My point is, they were already in relationship. This is not how you go to heaven. This is not how you get saved. This is not how you enter into relationship with God. They already had a relationship with God. This is how you maintain it so that a holy God can live in the midst of an unholy people. How else do we know that we're not putting our sins on the animal and then that animal dying on our behalf? Because there's only one time that Leviticus says sins are transferred to an animal, and it's the scapegoat. And what do you do with a scapegoat? You get it as far away from the tent as you possibly can. You send it out into the wilderness. Get it away from God's house. The idea that you would put your sins on an animal, kill that animal, and then sprinkle that sin-contaminated blood all over God's house is laughable to an ancient Israelite. It would never even possibly enter their minds that that could be what you're doing in Leviticus chapters 4 and 16. What? They would look at you like, what on earth are you talking about? Contaminate? with sin, and then sprinkle that all over God's house, contaminating God's house, that's how you drive a holy God away. Okay? So, maybe, Eric, maybe you're just an OT guy who's totally out of touch, and you don't know the New Testament. All right, let's read a little bit of Hebrews. All right? The book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 9... Hebrews chapter 9. The author is reflecting on some stuff that we just read. Okay. So Hebrews chapter 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lamps stand and the table with its consecrated blood, and this was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was the room called the most holy place. He's just describing what we've just been talking about. Okay. And uh, verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. And uh, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Do you catch that? Those sacrifices were not about cleansing the conscience of people. Okay? Uh, he gets into some other stuff, so I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Hebrews 9:21. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Check this out. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. You have to cleanse the stuff with blood. You have to cleanse God's house with blood. And uh, here's where we start to get the twist. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, the tabernacle, to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves... Heaven with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times. But he appeared once and for all. At the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and face judgment, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and will appear a second time. The point is, Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to cleanse heaven itself so that you could go there. If Jesus does not offer a perfect sacrifice and cleanse heaven itself with his blood, you don't go there when you die. That's what Hebrews 9 is talking about. And then in chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. That's why I said these sacrifices in Leviticus are not about getting people into heaven. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. Here's the line. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, why are you sacrificing bulls and goats in Leviticus? The answer is simple. Because the blood of bulls and goats is perfectly sufficient to cleanse the tabernacle. It was never sufficient, never intended to cleanse the conscience of people. A greater sacrifice was required. And what Christ did in his sacrifice is not only cleanse heaven itself so that we could potentially go there at some point and be in the presence of God, but it cleansed us so that we could become God's tabernacle. This is why Jesus says, hey, I've got to go to his disciples after his resurrection. I've got to go so that the Spirit can come and live in everyone, so that I can be everywhere in my people. The idea that Jesus died and, and what his blood did is the exact same idea that you have in Leviticus. In Leviticus, You sacrifice and you sprinkle blood to cleanse God's house. And it was sufficient for the tabernacle. But God's desire has always been and still is to be near people. To be in relationship with people. And centrally located in a tabernacle or a temple was not good enough for God. He said, I want to live so near people that I am actually within them. So I must send a better sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Jesus Christ himself. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses the tabernacle, us, so that God can live in us via his Holy Spirit. The blood sacrifice has always been about cleansing God's house. The twist is that now we are God's house. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice, and I thank you for what you've done, and I thank you for the blessing that you've given me uh, of being able to dive in it's uh, just, just the way you've separated me and given me time and space to to study deeply uh, these things that so inspire me in my faith. And Lord, if somehow, somehow you can use me to inspire people, even 1% of, of how you've inspired me in my faith, then it's worth the work, And and I thank you for it. Thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.